It's been over a year now since In The Key Of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap Unaware of my proclivities to self-sabotage to country soul and rock. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to the first in two Christmas special episodes of In The Key Of Q. The guest in this week's episode is, well, one of the family really. He composed our theme tune and has been a brilliant supporter of the podcast. Please be aware, though, that there is extensive discussion of depression and including some references to suicide, so listener discretion is advised. As ever, there will be support links provided in the show notes. I remember the first time I was depressed, seven years old, and my aunt said to me, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm depressed. And she goes, you're seven. How can you be depressed? I was. It was this sense of someone dims the screen in your lens of perception and everything feels heavy. This is In The Key Of Q, featuring musicians from around the world who inspire my queer identity. Everybody is welcome to the conversation, whatever beautiful identity pleases you. Music helps us feel connected and know that we are not alone. This program is made possible thanks to the financial support of listeners like you over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. And remember to join the conversation across socials using the hashtag queer music. I'm Dan Hall. Come on in, sit down and be heard. You've been hearing this week's guest since episode one. He composes and sound designs for advertising and short films and studied music technology at the University of West London. As well as a composer, he's also a singer performing and releasing under the name Deluno. So a big, big welcome to the horribly talented and very, very lovely Paul Leonudu. Paul, hello. Hello, Daniel, son. London, which is a bit of a cliche if you're Greek Cypriot. I remember my mum telling me that at about a year and a half old, uh, the first sign that she saw that I loved music was that I was watching Bugsy Malone with my milk bottle and I was lying on my back with my legs crossed, swinging my leg and kind of learning every single word to that musical. And I remember being so small that I didn't get that they were kids. They were like grown-ups to me, you know, in terms of context. Um, so, and then I started singing a bit of Tallulah and then she got a bit worried. She goes, uh oh, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Warning signs. You should warning. be singing the boxer. Yeah, exactly. I sang that too. I sang all of them. Yeah, that's the thing. I embraced them all indiscriminately. What was your upbringing like? I had a very vivid imagination and, you know, I would talk to things and beings that weren't there and, I was so in my own world and kind of music being this intangible thing that's just surrounding you. I just get swept up into music. I remember 
I remember uh, my mum playing Phantom of the Opera on vinyl, playing it really loud. And I remember hearing that, that main piece of music and I could visualize the notes, you know, I could see it. It was kind of like this symphony unraveling, it, like an animation in front of me. So yeah, I was very much, very, very much in my own world. Um, my mom said when she used to pick me up from school, actually, she could, uh, she could, t- she, her eyesight was quite bad, but she could tell it was me because, um, all the other kids are walking kind of very, you know, you uniformly, very slowly. And I'd be the one jumping up and down and spinning and <laughs> deviating from the line. She goes, that just summed you up. You were always singing. And, you know, I was a real joyful, joyful child. You know, I, I remember laughing a lot, smiling a lot, but I also remember there was that, there's that tipping point where you kind of realize other kids aren't quite so um, expressive. And then, and then you start getting singled out for it. And from quite a young age, I remember thinking, oh, I'm getting picked on for this. I'm getting singled out for this. And you start to see that, that there's a message that, that you're being fed, which is, you know, what you are in your natural form is not okay or not accepted or is a point of ridicule. And I think sadly, that's when I kind of started to retract into my shell, you know? So a lot of the time we get asked as queer people, when did you realize you were gay? And my stock answer to that has always been, I didn't realize I was gay. What I did is realize that other people thought I was wrong. Yeah. That's a really good way of looking at it. grammar school you know probably about age 13 14 everyone was calling me gay I, ha- I had long hair i remember i was quite expressive i moved my hands a lot you know which i just thought was a mediterranean thing of just being hey <laughs> um but it was very I, I realized there were i was being called gay in all these different words and i didn't even know what it meant and i kind of thought you know i th- whether they thought i was or not or i was just slightly different and a bit creative I don't know what it was, but there also came a point where I, I did get bullied quite a lot, but I also played into it. So as in, there was one point where someone says, oh, you're queer, you're gay, whatever. And I said, yeah, I am. What are you going to do about it? Go, uh, yeah. So if you snog the guy and then I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I'd, I thought I'd play into it to kind of diffuse the situation, but actually it made it worse. I went to an all boys school, which I don't recommend by the way. Um, but I remember I was sobbing in classroom and all the other kids have left and uh, all the other kids had left sorry and um i remember just saying to the teacher everyone hates me no one likes me and i think he kind of caught on to the fact that it was a gay related issue and he was a former priest and obviously very religious and he just turned to me he goes well i can't make people like you and i thought charming that's that's, that's nice So, Paul, you talked about you going from this outgoing, bubbly kid, uh, and then I guess witnessing the uh, the gradual disapproval of the world around you, the 
sort of suburban world around you of your outgoingness and you gradually retreated into yourself. What did that feel like retreating into yourself? And what did it look like? What was your behavior like? What was your what were your thoughts like? I haven't really thought about it um, in these terms. So I'm just kind of mulling it over. Because I think actually kind of putting on an act or pretending or, or at least holding certain parts of my personality back became second nature. You know, Greek Cypriot grandparents, they loved me dearly, but you know, devoutly religious and from a different world. So, you know, they always just thought gay equals evil. And I kind of had that level of understanding where I thought, well, they're from a world that can't comprehend it. And so I don't kind of, I don't judge them for it. But then you fall into the, into the habit of apologizing for who you are and apologizing for your existence, albeit under your breath and internally. I think I found myself becoming quite exhausted quite quickly. And, you know, a sense of imposter syndrome and what if I get uh found out um and that, that there's that constant feeling of looking over your back you know and i remember people used to say to my mum oh paul's too soft you need to toughen him up he'll be a sissy when he grows up and so those things ring they, they, they stay in your mind you know and, and, and to some extent as well i kind of agreed with the the wider opinion or you know i did believe that there was something wrong with me as well so just pretend hopefully no one will find out and everything will be okay but obviously that takes its toll after a while and especially when your identity is still forming and you're figuring out who you are you've spoken a bit about your greek separate identity what does that mean to you it means something different to me now than it did when i was younger i mean so growing up um you know single mother she used to work a lot. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And so I'd speak Greek to them and I'd hear stories from the old, from the old days in the villages and um, <clears throat> some very bizarre characters. If you go to the British Museum and look at, at Cypriot, ancient Cypriot specifically, um, artifacts, they look like bizarre, quirky, nutty clowns. They're just something really funny and endearing and childlike about them. Um, I remember going with my friend Fiona and she saw some of these statues. She goes, suddenly I understand you better seeing that. I think there's such a rich um, tapestry to draw from and it's wonderful to be a part of that. And then there's the more kind of less uh, appealing side where, you know, some of them used to be quite judgmental and narrow and a bit sexist, a bit homophobic, et cetera, et cetera. I think, you know, the younger generations are definitely getting better. But there was this weird sense of balancing and treading the line. But as a child and as an adult, being Cypriot, Greek Cypriot especially, I think, yeah, it's. I appreciate what a special island it is. <clears throat> it's very, very beautiful, has a quite a sad history. But um, there is a sense of magic, and I think th that's the side I try to embrace. And how do you feel that weaves into your British identity? Growing up, you see, this is less politically uh, it's less politically correct to say this these days, or less PC to to ask someone a question because someone would say, "Where are you from?" I'd say London or Rochester or wherever. They're like, no, no, where are you really from? It's basically saying. Tell me the origin of your otherness. 
isn't it? That's really what they're saying. They're saying, I look at you and you look like the other. I remember going to Cyprus on holiday and they'd be like, you're English. You're the English boy. And in England at school, well, no, you're Cypriot. You're different. You're different. And so there was that sense of always being, you know, ping-ponged from one tribe to the other. You don't quite belong with us. You don't quite belong with us. Your identity is this. Your identity is that. And at a, at a point in life where you really, really want to fit in and belong, that was very difficult. Romantically, I always thought the outsiders had this automatic sense of solidarity, but there can be a lot of conflict from outsider to outsider as well, because everyone's trying to struggle and find their own way. And I think there's a sense of dissonance there, which is quite sad. What is the adult Paul like? So he's left school. So who is this person that is thrown out onto the world? God, you pick some tough questions, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's just let's just um, put myself in the therapy session. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm still I'm still that sensitive kid. I still have a great sense of magic and imagination. Um, unfortunately, you know, there've been some very, very traumatic incidents in my life. I know, I think we all have, we all have things that, that scar us and shape us. And as you know, you know, through our friendship that, you know, depression and anxiety have reared their heads several times in my life. And, um, there was kind of a coming out when I first admitted I had depression. And that was interesting. And I was almost too ashamed to admit that too. That's a running theme, this internalized shame and this sense of what you are isn't okay. It's not okay to be depressed. It's not okay to be gay. It's not okay to be sensitive. It's not okay to be not as masculine as, as you know, cowboys who brand cattle or whatever. So I think the grown-up me now is more accepting of the of the darker aspects of 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 my psyche um and, and to realize that if you are depressed or anxious you know it's i i remember in a in a therapy session i can't remember who said it but there's a sense that your brain is just trying to keep you safe and so it will try and lock you down and make you more lethargic and make you want to stay at home and protect yourself because that's just it. You've had something traumatic happen to you in a certain sphere of life somewhere out in your travels. And your brain is just simply slowing down, trying to keep you in a sense of, in a lockdown, in a sense. For those who haven't experienced it, can you help create a picture, a 360 picture of what that experience is like? All right. Well, let me start with anxiety because I find that one easier to to describe and i remember writing a blog about this because i you know I, I i've nearly taken my life on on a few occasions um and 
when I kind of got out the other side, I had this thought that I needed to make sense of the suffering. And I thought if there's any good that can come from the suffering is that perhaps it can ease someone else's. One day I, I had, I felt like I had pre-exam nerves, pre-driving test nerves. I felt like I'd just received terrible news about a death or something like that. And then the house was on fire. And the anxieties of all of those things combined were just condensed into a tiny ball. And that was with me for most of the day for several weeks, several months. And it became torture. It was awful. And there's just a there's a degree of suffering that just seems so senseless because, you know, rationally, I know I'm okay. I'm safe in the space that I'm in right now. But something was uh, spiraling out of control. And a lot of people would say to me it's the opposite, but I always felt that anxiety exhausted me to the point of depression, whereas a lot of people would say, actually, depression will trigger the anxiety. And uh, who's to say? But um, that was my experience of anxiety. And after that, I was heavily medicated. And even though I, I will say that the medication did save my life, it also it comes at a price. You're addicted, you're foggy, your brain is a bit is a bit kind of cloudier. And there are other issues, let's say that. So you know, for me, medication wasn't wasn't the solution, but it did save my life and is one of many stepping stones. I remember the first time I was depressed, I was seven years old, and my aunt said to me, What's wrong with you? And I said, I'm depressed. And she goes, You're seven. How can you be depressed? <laughs> I was. It was this sense of, it can be quite a physical sensation. It's like uh, someone dims the screen in your lens of perception and everything feels heavy. You feel tired. You feel defeated and um, just lost in this fog. And, and it just, it genuinely feels like there's no way out. And, in the same way you get the endorphin rush when you get a text message or a like on social media, it's the polar opposite of that. It's the antithesis of that. Well, you've gone and broken down again, my love. But you got a little strength left. Yes, you got a little strength left. It's time. To wanna pick yourself back up and try again But you got a little fight left Yes, you got a little fight left And pain don't eradicate your strength I know that it's still there I know it's still inside you Pain don't eradicate your strength I know that it's still there Anything that tears us down Anything that wears us out Anything that blocks our way Depression and anxiety were a big part of your existence and continue to be. So what is the interconnectivity that these feelings have with your music and with the music that you create? When when I'm deep in a depressive episode, there's very little 
I can do. I, I don't have a desire to create or to even get out of bed. So, so that's quite difficult. But as it's starting to lift, there's this kind of, uh, kind of like this, this just before the dawn, the sun's starting to come up, and you can kind of reflect on what's just happened. And I wrote a song called Underworld at the end of a depressive episode, and it was really about feeling like I had died, gone to the underworld. And then really asking someone, don't bring me back to life. Don't, don't make me cross the river sticks and come back to this realm of reality unless you mean it. As in, unless you're going to allow me to, to live in a way that is, I don't know, authentic, if you like. It's part of the journey where you, you travel and explore and, and the darkness sometimes forces you to, to to access places that you wouldn't normally access. And so you kind of have to take the gifts that are given, even in the awful scenarios. One of the most lovely things about you, Paul, and my friendship with you is how open and honest you are about the anxiety and depression that you experience. And it makes me feel that I can be open with you about things I'm going through. Um, and it it intrigues me as to why there is society stigma around mental health and around having discourse about mental health. Where, where do you think that comes from? History. And I think in order to explore various mental health issues and those kinds of themes, you have to be in touch with your emotions and display a certain degree of emotional intelligence. And I think historically showing emotions has been deemed uh, a sign of weakness. I think that, that that definitely is changing. There is less of a stigma, but I think it's so hardwired into people that there is still that slight resistance. And sometimes people will be, you know, have the attitude of pull your socks up. And and also I think people who've never experienced depression, I think it's 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 hard. It can be hard to relate because people often say, well, what have you got to be depressed about? And I think, well, you know, it's like saying, well, what have you got to have a cold about? It's just <laughs> you, you have the cold, you have the depression. It's, um, it's not always circumstantial, but um, I, I think circumstances can, can exacerbate uh, a depressive episode, if you like. But yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's been talking about our feelings, especially you know, in the masculine kind of uh, patriarchal kind of society, you know, it's not not the done thing. You talked about going through multiple episodes, multiple periods of anxiety and depression, and multiple points where you were feeling suicidal. And yet here you are recording this podcast. So you've clearly found solutions enough but rather wonderfully, you are here today. Could you share with us some of your coping mechanisms that you have uh, discovered over the years? Yes. Um, silence is what nearly killed me the first time. Silence and shame and keeping quiet. They nearly killed me. And those were the things that I was encouraged to do. Don't talk about this. Don't say this. Don't admit that you're feeling this way. Don't admit that. Don't and you know I and and as someone who 
well, we all need to express ourselves. But I think if 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 you allow your voice to be diminished, I think there's some there's some level of of apologizing for your existence. And and then if you start apologizing for your existence, then you don't feel like you're entitled to the space that you occupy. And if you don't feel valid in the space you occupy, then you start to fade. And that that was kind of my scenario for a long time. So in terms of coping mechanisms, just knowing that we are all entitled to basic fundamental rights, whether that's rights under the law or emotional rights or just being seen, heard, acknowledged, and just understanding that what you're going through is valid and because quite often we invalidate our pain and we invalidate our angst and our experiences whereas i've had friends say to me is that a, is that a an extreme reaction i'm having to this am i being over the top and i'll say i think you're having a valid response to a very weird situation whether you feel it's over the top or whether you feel it's too much or people are judging you does not matter for now you just need to be okay with it. And is it serving you? Is this how you want to be portrayed? Is this how you want to feel? These are the next questions and you can dissect it. But I think just normalizing an intense experience, I think, can be a big game changer. Any silence in the truth we want to speak. Any power in the world that makes us weak. Anything the non-believers want to say. I've composed music, fine, for commercials, for short films and whatever. And, you know, that music serves a purpose and it was done for a reason. And and it, it's not the most freeing experience, but you're still using the skills of your craft to deliver something that is needed. And then on the other side of things, I've always been, you know, I'm a singer-songwriter, but I've always remained behind the scenes because it ties back into that apologizing for your existence you cannot be apologetic for your existence and then go up on stage and own the stage and be proud of what you've said the two things just don't marry up so i've done a lot of work on myself in therapy and just you know understanding that you know i have as much right to stand on stage as someone else but you know i had to ask the question why can i champion someone else a contemporary appear. Why can I champion them going up on stage, yet not champion myself? So why would you treat someone else with the grace that they deserve, but not yourself? And well, it ties back to everything we've been talking about. I think ultimately low self-esteem, that whole, there are still echoes of that apologizing for who you are and then not fully accepting it. But there comes a point, I think, you know, did I create music for me? Yes. Did I create it to be heard? Also, yes. And and I'm, I'm someone who always says that, let the material speak for itself, but the material can't speak for itself if I don't give it a platform to be able to speak in the first place.
I think it's very important that we don't allow our fears to turn into regrets. Even saying I'm gay in certain spheres still, still gives me that sense of dread. Some people really need to, to align themselves with, with a label and that helps them. Some people don't. Some, and again, even with uh, mental health, some people really need to align themselves with a diagnosis. And I think that really helps because it kind of helps to realize where you are on, on a spectrum at any given point. But I don't think I'll ever be entirely okay because in, 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 in the sense that I know that somewhere out, somewhere out there, some people are going to have a problem with who I am and through something that's not my fault. And for some reason there's, there's this just, it just, I just find it sad. And I think that sadness triggers a little bit of, uh, of, um, reluctance, if you like. Paul, what do you think your 15-year-old self would think of you? Oh, gosh. I think he'd be impressed that... that um, he'd be impressed with some of the songs we've written or we, we would have written. He'd be... Dare I say this, he'd be impressed that we're still alive. <laughs> and I do mean that in the... In a serious but kind of comical way. Um, he'd be impressed we've made it so far, actually. What queer artists are you listening to at the moment? Well, I'm a big fan of John Grant. I love him. I think he's, his lyrics are just fantastically clever. And um, yeah, and the energy behind his music is fantastic. Yeah, Queen of Denmark is probably one of my favorite albums. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I discovered it through, well, I discovered him through the film Weekend, which used a couple of his tracks and gosh, incredible album. Oh, I didn't know him when I watched that film, actually. And I was just so, oh, I, I fell in love with that film. It was just, yeah, it really got to me. Um, and I know you've had him on as a guest and he's one of my musical partners in crime, but Memory Flowers, Andy Pisanu, um Oh, the impossibly handsome Andy. Yes, yes, and impossibly talented too. He's just oh, I listen to some of his songs and it's it's so nice when you have a friend who is genuinely talented and you really genuinely like the the music they create. There's none of this having to oh yeah, it's really good, yeah, a nice one. You know, I, I, yeah, I wholeheartedly am one of his biggest fans. And, I have to um, say Paul, that's also how I feel about you. So I'm now you can know how I feel when I hear your music. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Wow. But um, also, also, I listen to a lot of, um, you know, 80s music and, you know, uh, Mark Almond. I love, I love his voice. Oh. Some of his Shantou stuff is just incredible. The Torchong material that he was doing, especially in the 90s. And I think Nonstop Erotic Cabaret is, is another one of my favorite albums. He's just got such an incredible voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of nice having grown up in the era, in the era of 80s music. Uh, you know, I'm, I kind of grew up on Eurythmics and uh, 
go who else did my mom play in the car she'd play rhythmics the pretenders you know all that mm. uh, fantastic songwriters and you know those songs really I, I ask myself do i like that stuff because it's, it's it's a nostalgia type thing or would i like it if i discovered it today and i i think no that there was some really really great stuff and also you blew my mind when tina turner i when i had no idea bucks fizz wrote and recorded what's love got to do with it the first time i literally mind blown and i love their version as well i am the earth and you are the sun i am the player you are the fun we got the rhythm we got the soul i make you laugh until you lose control i am the music you want to dance i am the game and you are the chance i am the fire you are the light i make you laugh until you lose your mind remember liberty x a little bit more i think anastasia was meant to have that first i think she turned it down or maybe it was kylie but yeah it was just oh you hear oh this was this was penned or you know put aside for this singer and then someone else grabbed it um also i think um that's true with elkie brooks no more the fool oh i, I love that song samantha fox was meant to have that i believe i think no, it's get yeah out of here. yeah i think so well, it's like Mandy Smith recorded the first version of Kylie's Got to Be Certain. No way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so but it's funny. like, I've got to be, <gasps> got to be certain. <gasps> <laughs> and she can't do that key change bit. You know where Kylie goes, oh, 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 Yeah. She, just, she doesn't even try. Oh, bless. That's so funny. Now, Paul, we've got a new bit uh, on the podcast where I say to my guests that they can get two minutes guaranteed, no edit pencil comes out where you have a platform where you can talk about whatever you want. Because as you know, I do edit this podcast down, but the next two minutes I won't do. You can literally talk about anything you want, and the clock will start whenever you do. Gosh, this is like a quick fire round. This is bizarre. Okay, well, what I would like to talk about is that I went to see the Hokusai exhibition at the British Museum um, a couple of months ago, and it was the first exhibition I'd been to in a while due to lockdown and it was the perfect example of how creativity can be sparked from strange places and from different mediums so for example um there's a talk about uh neil gaiman and tori amos are talking about creating and neil says i won't read other books if i want to create a book i'll listen to music or i'll look at a painting and, and conversely tori says oh, I'll read a book or look at a painting if I want to write a song. So I just found that quite interesting how, you know, it, things can transcend different mediums and kind of spark an idea. So I went to the British Museum and saw a sketch in the Hokusai exhibition called Ladder of Clouds to the Moon. And I thought this was such an amazing title. And I was just like, this is why you have to come out and expose yourself to things that are amazing. And I went home and I wrote a poem called ladder to the moon obviously directly inspired by it and then it became a song and it's probably one of the most poetic things i've done in a while but still accessible and and it was yeah it's and it was a sign of me um not 
feeling the need to censor myself or not oh try and write it in a yeah not, not trying to write for this audience or that audience don't try to simplify something so people may or may not get it it was the first time i think you know be authentically you and talk about the things you love and the things that you find are beautiful and hopefully other people will see that too so yeah that was a very recent experience but it was a really wonderful one you pick me up whenever i'm down i am the joker you are the clown you are the worth and i am the gold you made me laugh until i lose control I am the ocean, you are the tide I am the fair and you are the ride You are the groom and I am the bride I make you laugh until you lose your mind Now, Paul, for those people who are falling in love with your music, where can people find you online? My more pop electro stuff is under an alter ego called Deluno, and he's released one song and he's releasing a few others early next year. So Deluno can be easily found uh, at the usual places, but under my own name, uh, I'll be doing the more singer-songwritery stuff, piano-based vocal material. And you won't be able to find that right now, but it will be coming soon. But most of these things are featured on mine and Andy's website. So unstoppablemonsters.com. And that all ties back to Memory Flower stuff. And you can find the Luno stuff. And you can find some YouTube clips of Paul Leonidu as well. So I'd go to Unstoppable Monsters as a starting point. Thank you, Paul. We've been listening to a lot of your music throughout this podcast, but I think we've been saving the best till last. And if there was one song that would act as a gateway into your catalogue to people that didn't know your material, what would that song be and why? It would actually be Ladder to the Moon. And I'll tell you why, because at the core of it is um, it's piano and strings and it, it draws on influences like Simon and Garfunkel, like Cat Stevens, like the people who really inspired me. And I think if you just want an authentic look at who I am when I'm not censoring the work and just allowing it to flow, then I think that is an accurate depiction of who I am and who I'm happy to be as an artist. Time. You wait for no one Even if I weigh down your shoes Time you wait for no one Even if I bore you with my blues And I take you by the hand To stop you moving by so fast But you just stretch my hand And I build a clouds to reach you and I build a ladder to your heart made of songs to teach you why oh why can you see me waiting by so patiently with time you wait for no one 
bad for no one Even if I play a different beat And I take you by the hand To stop you moving by so fast But you just stretch my hand And I build a ladder to the moon Made of clouds to reach you And I build a ladder to your heart Made of songs to teach you why Oh, why can't you see me Waiting by so Paul Lee Nidu, thank you very, very much for not only composing our theme tune and being a fantastic support to the podcast, but also being a wonderful guest. Thank you for having me. And as you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I wish you much continued success with this and all of your other ventures. Time you wait for no one Even if I weigh down your shoes Will you wait for no one Even if I bore you with my blues Time you wait for no one Even if I'm standing on your feet You wait for no one Even if I play a different beat Time you wait for no Many thanks for listening to this episode with the lovely Paul Lee Nudu. And remember to listen to him on the usual platforms and find links to his homepage in the show notes. We have exclusive Key of Q content over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. And there you can join other listeners by supporting the show's production costs for as little as five US dollars a month. Tell me what you thought about today's episode on social media using the hashtag queer music or email me direct on podcast at in the key of Q.com. And rate and review the show on your podcast provider. It really, really helps. Our theme tune, of course, is by the wonderful Paul Leonidu at unstoppablemonsters.com with our press and PR by Paul Smith. And many thanks to Kaj and Murray for their support. The show is presented and produced by me, Dan Hall, and made at Pup Media. Well, that's all from me. Go listen to some music, and I'll see you next Tuesday.